0: to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Today's guest is Lolis Eli. He is a man of many talents, a journalist, a food historian, most recently and currently a screenwriter for the great Amazon show, Man in the High Castle. Really enjoyed season three. And Lolis is one of my favorite people in the world to talk to, a great dining companion. And someone that constantly educates me about how the, how the world works, basically. And he's got an amazing background, history, education, you name it. Easily one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. He was very helpful for us in the first season of Ugly Delicious. And he's helping us out this season as well. And uh been meaning to get him in the podcast for quite some time. So I was really... Happy that we could finally lock down a date, and just basically have a rambling conversation about food, about judgment, about awards, about the meaning of being recognized, and so on and so forth. Some talk about the Beard Awards. Hopefully, enjoy it. Is just how we would have talked over some food, and there's uh, again some more spoon by H conversation. We we had a podcast with Isaac Lee, the producer professing our love about spoon by age. And it's something that Lolis has been uh, dining frequently at uh, himself. Check out his work on Man in the High Castle. And he's got a lot of articles and just sort of opinions in general. And uh, he's a member of the Southern Foodway Alliance. If you don't know what that is, it is probably one of the best food organizations out there. I will shut up now and let you hear my conversation with Lola's Eli, and there will be a fun outro about top five food movies after the conversation. Thanks so much. So I'm with my friend, Lola's Eli, and I just realized we've known each other for what? Since Treme.
1: Before that. Southern food was so SFA, Alliance. that's right. Yeah. So almost 10 years. In fact, this is a crazy night because I was having dinner at Tabla with my gourmet editor. But John T. and all the SFA people were going to be at Momofuku. And I'm like, man, I, I got to do both. So I show up and I'm late. So you managed to get some buns out of the kitchen. Because, like, you know, the kitchen was damn near closed. So that was like, you know, this boy is all right with me. You know? <laughs> and... uh Man, wait,
0: I don't even know where to begin. I have so many questions asked, but um, you were a founding member of, of the SFA. Mm-hmm. And these organizations are important because you can't have someone, honestly, yes, you can. You can't have someone from California telling us what the best restaurant or where the sort of zeitgeist is in Southern food culture, right? Like,
1: Yeah, but even more importantly than this notion of best to me is this notion of exploring the culture and trying to understand it because one of the issues with BEST is in the context of the Southern Foodways Alliance, suddenly I began to realize, wait a minute, they are 10 or 12 Souths. And so this pimento cheese thing everybody's talking about, I'm like, man, I never heard of no pimento cheese growing up. And then it's okay, well, it's it's the type of thing that you're more apt to have gotten in Alabama or Georgia. So I'm talking to a friend of mine, a black woman from Georgia, and she's like, man, that's some white shit. We ain't never had that. (laughs) But again, it's a matter of saying, well, look, In the context of this organization, we can seek to learn from each other. And one of the things we learned is not only where we're similar, but where we're different. And what I like is the idea that Southerners are defining this. And people from anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world can come and join us in this conversation. But so much that I did not understand before about prejudice against Southerners is built into this culture. Explain more. Well... We always hear people talk about, well, he had a Southern twang. You never hear anybody say he had a flat Midwestern accent or he had a New York or Bronx accent. You seldom get that kind of thing. The assumption is that, that Southern accent means stupid. The assumption that is that Southern accent and Southern food ways are somehow primitive and unsophisticated. And... What I learned in the context of doing the barbecue book is well, these guys cannot cook the range of classic dishes that a trained chef can cook. But I'd far rather have him in front of the barbecue pit than this French guy who's used to working inside on a stove. Part of what the Southern Foodways Alliance does, a part of what this cultural ascendancy of the South does, is it gives us a broader sense of who we are. As an organization that deals a lot with immigration issues, called Define America. And, of course, in attempting to define America or define American, you realize how difficult that is. And we all have a right to say, wait a minute, I'm American too, so your definition has to include me. The definition becomes at once more watered down and stronger because it has to include all these people who might not automatically be in in your assumption.
0: Hmm. You were talking about barbecue. You wrote a barbecue book. I think we were praised and roundly criticized for our barbecue episode last year. And part of me was like, you know what? Like talking about the Steve Youn episode. I have a lot of response, a lot of things that I could say, not to defend, but to rationalize and to explain how it all happened. Those that know us and Morgan or myself, even on the, the lack of representation as a whole, somewhere through like interview 20, I was like, I'm not going to explain it. I'm just going to say, we're going to do a better job. Hmm. Hmm. Because we just have to accept the fact that like, if someone feels that, well, they saw something and they didn't see what was meaningful to them. I can't tell them that are wrong. Hmm. We just got to do a better job. I say, I'm sorry, we're going to try to do a better job. So when you watch that episode, because you are in the fried chicken episode, you're helping us out in this season what would you have criticized about barbecue?
1: I have one big concern, and it's really linguistic, and is actually something to keep in mind in a broader sense. You're attempting to argue that Korean barbecue is barbecue. My concern about that is, as I imagine the history, some Korean folks came here, they started doing their food, and they're saying, what's it similar to, or what can we say to let Americans know what to expect? And the term barbecue is certainly not Korean. And I also don't know if Koreans would make a distinction between sort of quick grilling and the slow smoking that we define as barbecue in this context. So what I'm saying is that when you talk about Korean barbecue or Argentinian barbecue, or you put that term on these other foods, I'm saying it has become something very specific in the context of American culture. Meat, cooked solely over hardwood or charcoal, So the smoke is doing the cooking, not the fire. And in fact, the FDA has a definition about how much fat it has to lose in that process. So when we're talking about Korean barbecue, for the most part, we're talking about grilling. And so the barbecue folks make a big distinction in between that. So I think a lot of it has to do with the whole question of language and translation and the immigrant attempt to put himself or herself in the context of this new country. Well, this is a word that we can agree on, even if it's imprecise in defining this food that comes from a different country.
0: I think the other, and we'll talk about it in a second, was uh, there was a lack of representation in it. And again, I'm not going to explain.
1: <laughs> uh, we could have done a better job. We will do a better job. and Yeah, but we get to another issue that complicates things greatly. Barbecuing is long, hot, dirty work. And in the South, certainly prior to the civil rights movement, that work for the most part was done by black folks. But post-integration, you get several things going on. One, black people now have other options in terms of what they're going to do for a living. So a whole lot of these families that had restaurants or barbecue shacks were trying to send their kids to college, trying to get their kids to be doctors and lawyers, because that's what good American kids are supposed to be. They, in many instances, put down, what I mean put down, stop doing the barbecue, stop doing the soul food, and the kids are doing something else. And then white folks begin to rediscover these things. And so certainly the most infamous and arguably the most important people doing barbecue these days in this country are white. So you get someone like Rodney Scott or like Ed Mitchell, these two folks doing whole hog barbecue Carolina style, who've gotten to be somewhat celebrities in that context. Part of what has gotten them to be celebrities is folks like uh, Danny Meyer with the, um, the Big Apple Barbecue Block Party and the Southern Foodways Alliance saying, we want to be certain these people are included. But it becomes difficult because the people being celebrated now are to a great extent white. And you can't say it that they don't deserve it. I mean, Adam Perry Lang works his ass off. And um, Franklin. You know, you can't take anything away from these guys. And additionally, they have refined this art form in a different kind of way. But part of what happens, though, is that white people have a better understanding of what will appeal to white critics and white diners and white press. So they have some advantages that the mom-and-pop shops are not apt to have. And... I think it was important last year that Rodney Scott won James
0: Beard Best Chef Southeast.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: That was the first time I think that award's ever been given out to someone that is not like, at least in that region, not a fancy pants restaurant.
1: Right. And yeah, part of it, I think, has to be about what defines James Beard Awards and to what extent are they different from the Michelin Guide to other European-based models. Which is not to say that, well, American food is so different that there's no there's no cross-section at all. It's to say, what can we celebrate about ourselves and what can we say about ourselves? And Rodney Scott expresses American food and also does something that is not only quintessential, but he does it on a, such a high level, it deserves that kind of recognition.
0: I just had Rodney's barbecue. I've had Rodney's barbecue at festivals or charity events, so I was really excited to see a shop down in Charleston. So um, if you haven't had the chance, if he's, Ronnie's cooking near you because he travels all the time, or visit a spot down in Charleston, it is tremendous. Yeah. Really, really tremendous.
1: I haven't had the pleasure of having it in its natural habitat, but I'm I'm looking forward to going there. Um, one more thing about the beard Award, and then I want to
0: go back to the barbecue thing. If we're talking about being more understanding about the world and who selects what, and at our best trying to see as many varied viewpoints as possible and to be patient and understanding and to realize that whatever decision we come up with will ultimately not be perfect, but it's the effort to make it the best possible. Why are we still having the American classics, hmm. which is is <laughs> my favorite part of the Beard Awards, mm-hmm. but it's, we're talking about a lot of problems in, in the culinary arts today putting a lot of emphasis on awards and showcasing certain kinds of restaurants. And then if you make comfort food or restaurants that actually people like to go to, well, we're giving you an honorific award. And you're going to have to work your ass off, and maybe we'll give you one. Yeah. With all that we're changing in food today, and the Beard Awards doing its best to be more inclusive and understanding of all the different viewpoints and people, why do we still have American classics?
1: Hmm.
0: I'm not trying to put you on the spot, man, but... I just would love your opinion because it's like, shit, why don't we just get rid of it?
1: Well, let me put it in a slightly different context. We talk about like the New York Times critics and they will give you, you know, two, three, four or five stars. Suppose you are doing great fried chicken in a place that's clean and well lighted, but is not at all fancy. Is it appropriate for you to get five stars? My inclination is to say part of what that five star says is not merely that the food is good, but all this other stuff. Is great as well. And the beards to me are saying roughly that, that if it's gotten a beer reward, it probably is the place you want to go for your anniversary dinner with your wife or that kind of thing. Now, we can turn that on its head, but that also brings up the question of how do we, how do we compare these restaurants across these various genres? How do we compare Rodney Scott to Danielle Boulou? And I'm not certain how to do that. This is
0: why I bring this up, because it's funny. We were talking about Burning, the great, great movie that just came out. And maybe by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be nominated for Foreign Picture. Why can't it just be Best Picture? (laughs) Right? Yeah. yeah. And we're so close to it that we, I mean, we're limiting ourselves. Like, yeah, we're talking about decor. But at the end of the day, what makes food such an amazing thing? It's almost like the... NCAA tournament you never know who can actually trump who because ultimately it's how you leave a restaurant mm-hmm. and if I go to Nashville I'd say almost all the chefs in Nashville say Arnold's is the best restaurant in Nashville and they're not mm-hmm. just saying that as a joke like people really believe it because it, people are so happy yeah
1: yeah isn't that what we should be judging I would agree like what I've come to realize in judging restaurants is the real question is not so much whether I enjoyed myself that night is whether or not the next day I'm saying, when am I going to be able to go back? Right. Trying to judge aesthetics in that way is always difficult. But
0: aesthetics to me is just another obstacle that probably needs to go. Because when we're talking about aesthetics, that's also like a a low-key way of talking about the things that you're not supposed to talk about.
1: (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah, but you know something else though, you also got to look at the whole structure of this. Are these fancy sponsors of the Beard Awards willing to consistently talk about a place like Rodney Scott, which does not use the fancy crystal, which does not have the fancy water being sold there, etc.? So there is an extent to which this is all about people who are spending big money. So I go to the Beard Awards and I say, I'm not even certain who the wine glass sponsor, Beadle or Spiegelau or whoever it is. I see them and I say, well, I need that either in my restaurant or in my house because this is the best of the best. If Rodney Scott and Willie Mays in these places keep winning, I wonder whether or not Spiegelau and, and Perrier or whoever would still want to sponsor these things. So you get to that thing, which has nothing to do with the quality of the food at all. Yes. And I think that's a future that's so
0: exciting. <laughs> I agree with you. People are probably like, oh my God, tell them to
1: shut up. <laughs> no, I think that this notion that everything needs to have corporate sponsorship. Now, maybe that means you can no longer have it in the fancy ballroom and have all these other things going on. The worst dressed event in America. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Well, you know something, a friend of mine, so you can always tell the uh, the food critic at the restaurant because he, he's the one who looks like he doesn't belong there. He, <laughs>
0: You ask a bunch of chefs and food writers to dress up in black tie is hilarious. Yeah. 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 <sighs> <sighs> but I mean, I, I see the importance of the SFA because I think SFA has allowed America to shine the light on the Ed Mitchells and the Rodney Scotts of the world. God bless important. And it's almost weirdly I can align it. It's almost like the fight for authenticity. There are, I hate authenticity when it's about copying, but I love authenticity when it's about preserving and educating. So SFA to me is about preserving and educating, but everything else that might be an organization like the top 50 per se is about extracting and not, and copying because top 50 is wonderful in one end, Mm -hmm. but it's also about, well, if that restaurant is number two and number one, I got to do
1: everything like one and two. Well, SFA starts off with an intellectual foundation, which is that we are trying to study, preserve and celebrate these aspects of our culture. Southern Foodways Alliance gives awards every year, but there's not some sense that you got the award because you were the best this year. The idea is you got the award this year because this thing we've been studying, you exemplify some of the best, you know, if we're doing something about people rediscovering heirloom vegetables from the South. They might give this award to someone who's a farmer, someone who's been doing that kind of thing. Or we're talking about animal husbandry. We're doing, giving an award to someone who's dealing with heirloom breeds. But James Beard does not have that kind of an ethos behind it. And there are things that they do that sort of celebrate these things. But it is about this idea of what's the best and not about this idea of discovery.
0: I understand that it sounds like I could be someone that's... Uh biting the hand that fed them. I, I'm really not, I'm just like, man, the Beard Awards seemed to be so much more influential pre-internet. Mm. It really was. Mm. It was a congregation of people or cooking at the Beard House. It allowed you, in so many ways, the Beard House then was what the SFA is today. It was about putting someone on a pedestal that you may not know about. And although it's changing, and I can see Mitchell Davis wanting to punch me in the face right now or strangling me. Please Mitchell, don't. <laughs> It's it's just me being like, how do we help evolve it into something that is not just whatever it is today? Because you can go on Instagram or social media and find the hottest new restaurant. Every publication has the top 10 best new list. That, it's a smaller world now. There's no more discoveries
1: per se. One of the things I love about you and I love about this podcast is the extent to which One, you think out loud, and two, you don't assume that the eternal verities need always be the realities that we live with. But for most of us, the idea is that this is how it is supposed to be, and we don't question it. And I agree, it doesn't make sense. I mean, the kind of thing that would be very interesting to me is if you did get, you know, 10 celebrated, famous, fancy chefs who said, okay, once a year, we're going to get together— and find 10 restaurants that you probably haven't heard of, that we think are really good. And so in that sense, it's like, okay, well, you know, I trust David Chang because he won an award, but he's saying Willie Mays Fried Chicken or Spoon by H, one of these places is great, so I want to check it out. And that way, we get a kind of democratization um, where it's not only about the fine dining. But what I've come to find out, though, is most people don't want to raise those kinds of questions. Why? <laughs> Literally, I, I don't know. Well, part of it, I think, is that most people are sitting there figuring out, how am I going to pay to rent this month? How am I going to handle my personal stuff so these larger fights don't concern them? Additionally, if you don't have an opinion, the world will give you an opinion. In a parallel way, I think about like shopping for Christmas. I hate the malls even though there's some malls, particularly in Los Angeles, that are attractive and kind of fun, but I'm kind of like, I want to find something that you're not going to be able to get at Macy's or at Nordstrom's or something like that. But most folks take the opposite position. They're shopping for jewelry at sale. They're trying to find um, the thing that everyone else is wearing. And there's a lot of reasons why chefs are increasingly looking to Southern ingredients and Southern techniques as the basis for the sort of new American cuisine. I think Southern Foodways Alliance is part of that. But think about it, man. Everywhere you go, they got grits on the menu. Biscuits are on the menu everywhere. How, that, how does that make world. you feel, man? Um, <laughs> you know, well, in fact, I did, this, I did this lecture about what happens when you get discovered. Because I, my theory is that one of the reasons the South has all this interest in stuff is this sort of insular nature, particularly after the Civil War the sense that we want to do it our way, we want to maintain our racism and all the rest of this stuff, we don't care about your outside influence, Where the North was still looking to Europe for examples. So what you get is this melting pot of African and Native American and Euro-American cultures without as much of an outside influence. But when you begin to have commerce and communication with the rest of the world, does that not dilute your culture? Hmm. And mind you, as someone who's traveled or someone who's learned a lot from all these other people and places, I applaud that. But I'm not certain that we will still be able to have that same kind of individuality or or signature as a region. What are your thoughts when you see, and I want
0: to talk about your upbringing in New Orleans and your travels and what you're doing now, but we tend to always talk about stuff like this, like, what do you feel like when you see the American South, which is really American food, which ultimately is African food, whether people realize it or not, Jessica, Jessica's her name. I can't remember Jessica's Jessica Harris. Name. She's, she's doing a whole new thing with MoFad, a whole thing about basically African American food. I, I, I don't know. Cause I haven't seen it yet. And I think it's going to be important for people to understand the history and the lineage of that. But when you go to California and you start to see Southern restaurants, yeah. We've had variations of this conversation before with fried chicken and such, but we could do it with Korean food or whatever. But this is something that is a little bit.
1: Yeah. Um, there's a Southern restaurant here, which I went to a few times and really loved until a friend of mine pointed out to me that they have a, a special dinner for old Fuss and Feathers, who is a Southern general who helped to exterminate Indians and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And so I wrote a letter to the chef saying, I'm not certain if you realize this person's background, but, you know, it's, it's, I can't support this kind of thing, although I love your restaurant. I never got a response. Hmm. The question is exactly what are we celebrating about the South? And the American assumption is that Africans came here like blank slates, and you told them, pick this up, do that, do this, and that's all they contributed but in fact, as we do more scholarship, we're realizing that people who are attempting to do iron working in America would look to get people from Benin and Nigeria because they knew those people knew iron working. If you're in Louisiana, South Carolina, you're trying to do rice cultivation, you want to find people from the Senegambia region because they are doing the indigenous African rice and therefore know how to do these wet rice techniques that you're trying to do. Our assumption about African ignorance is so deep that we have difficulty imagining what what the African contributions to our culture have been. And a big part of what I'm attempting to do, particularly in the context of Louisiana food, is say, wait a minute, this attempt to try to connect gumbo and bouillabaisse makes no sense. Anybody who knows what bouillabaisse is knows that gumbo does not have that connection, but they got all kinds of okra soups and okra stews along the coast of West Africa. And in fact, okra is an indigenous African vegetable. So why can't we just acknowledge the extent to which African contributions have been tremendous? Also, who was doing the cooking? These white women weren't cooking. And if am in the context of New Orleans and Louisiana, there weren't any white women there. Mm. So I'm not attempting to take away from the French and the Europeans in general in terms of what they've done. But What I'm saying, we have so devalued the contribution of Africans that we really need to reevaluate them. We see it in our music. Where would American music be in the absence of the African contribution? We see it in our dance. Why can't we see it as clearly in our food? So I'll present this this hypothetical then.
0: You have a restaurant that's super busy in L.A., downtown L.A., we'll just say it's a big warehouse space or wherever. It's just crushing it and it has all the the the, the markers for Southern food. You got buttermilk biscuits. You got, you know, pan fried chicken. You got pickled okra. You got Glenn's grits. You got all the bourbon. You got the whole <laughs> thing. You, you have, it's like this hodgepodge of the American South from low tide to New Orleans, everything in between. People love it. They're doing their part. They've answered a lot of the questions. They've avoided all the things that you just said about dishes or figures that you shouldn't be celebrating. Is this restaurant southern the SFA? And I'm not picking on the SFA, but when does the SFA celebrate a restaurant like this? This hypothetical southern hodgepodge restaurant that's very successful. Because if you don't, that
1: explains a lot. There is a restaurant in Chicago. What is Paul's, Paul Fireback? I'm trying to get the name of his restaurant. I don't know. He's doing southern food in Chicago. And we have celebrated him. In fact, I did a book party there. And he's on the board of the Edna Lewis Foundation. Or a good friend of mine who passed away a few years ago had a restaurant called Memphis Minis, Bill Cantor. And he was doing brisket tacos or brisket um, egg rolls, I think. And we had him come down. So we are not opposed to celebrating those kinds of restaurants and those kinds of people who are embracing the kinds of things that we're attempting to do. But, you know, one thing that becomes interesting, I first saw it in barbecue. Then I saw it in Indian food, and now I see it in sort of the pan-southern thing, that you lose all specificity in these kinds of restaurants. Like, you know, what is northern Indian food and southern Indian food? Well, if you go to most Indian restaurants here, it's sort of the same menu everywhere. And you order rice and bread, despite the fact that in many instances it'd be either or up there. Or you go to a new barbecue restaurants, and they got a Carolina vinegar sauce and a Memphis tomato-based sauce, and so you lose some sense of the range of it. So it may all taste great, but in terms of the education and experience, you're missing some of that.
0: And I I could sound like a crazy person when you just explained about not having the specificity. I think that's the wrong kind of specificity that you see in awards. Mm -hmm. We should, in theory, be celebrating everything, but we're like, no, 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 right? Like, either let's not have the awards altogether or let's just reevaluate everything.
1: I think the awards are good. And in fact, particularly in the context of Southern Foodways Alliance, I had an argument with uh, my dear friend, Brett Anderson, who writes for the Times-Picayune, because I thought we should give more awards. Now, mind you, I wanted to give more awards in part because the kind of people we're trying to give awards to, until recently, were never going to get a James Beard Award. And even now, they're, they got one shot per year to get them, and like these people, in are 70, 80 years old. I like the idea of celebrating these kinds of people, and I wish we could come up with a way Mm. that could celebrate them. But there is a whole infrastructure to celebrate the fine dining stuff. You know, man, if we're going to open a new whatever, a new Danielle, a new Momofuku code, that's a couple of million dollars. And so in a sense, your investors say, saying, look, I didn't put all this money here. I want some return. I want to get a James Beard Award, which then means I can finally get my return. Right. So this weirdly gets to one of the things
0: I wanted to talk about was Spoon by H. Mm-hmm. I heard that you wanted to go
1: there, but now you can't go there. I was trying to go at this very minute, but oh. then you changed our ah, time. Thank you. So I have I'm... to get to
0: work because I'm going to Sydney tonight. Okay. Um, I really struggled telling people about this restaurant. My biggest fear was, could they handle more more customers? Because I see how hard they work. And I I don't want to tell them how to work. I have never been behind the walls if you go there. But I imagine how hard it is because they have a sodeer oven on the left side when you walk in and you see all the baking trays and how well-worn they're in. And you can only fit two sheet trays. So if they're baking cookies, they can only bake six to eight at a time. If you can extrapolate just how hard it is for them to bake stuff, how are they making this food? And there's no bathroom. It's not a traditional restaurant. And you know there are people that had told me about this restaurant and they may never speak to me again because it definitely ruined it for them. But the more and more I would speak to them, my Korean being terrible, they were like, we need to be busier. And, and we would love to grow. We've been here six years. We work here six days a week. The only day off they take off is Thanksgiving Day. I'm just like, fuck, this food is so good. And it is unequivocally the best food I could take. Like when I think about what I want to eat, and I am so fucking lucky, I get to eat the fanciest, best, most amazing restaurants around the world. My heart wants to go there every meal. But when I think about awards, I'm like, you're damn right I'm going to put that on top 50 this year.
1: Right, <laughs> you right,
0: damn right, right I am. Right. And you know what? I know no one's ever going to vote for it.
1: Now, one of the things that is complicated about that is understanding what to change and what to maintain. I can think of two women offhand who I think have figured it out in a good way. Carrie Seaton, who's taken over from her great-grandmother, Willie May, in New Orleans. And the woman who has... Um, Her father was named Bishop, um, Dreamland Barbecue. So you go to Dreamland Barbecue, they got a few other places, they sell a couple more items, they figure out a way to capitalize on it more. Part of the difficulty with those mom and pop shops is they don't necessarily understand the kinds of ways in which they could maximize their revenue, even doing kind of what they're doing. But, so you and your consultants go in there and you tell Spoon by H, look, we should go to this new fancy place down the street. It's vacant. You should do X, Y, and Z. Will it still be the same restaurant? I wrestle with this all the time. You know, I got a parallel issue, which is, um, it's an Ethiopian restaurant that we got attended. Oh, to yeah. You've been talking to me about yeah, this. Lalibela. Now, mind you, what I found is that I'd go there a lot for lunch and it would be empty for dinner. It's full. This place is better than any Ethiopian restaurant I've been to in Addis Ababa, in D.C., or here, it's like home cooking to me. Now, it's the same dishes on, on the menus you see these other places. And I'm saying to myself, you know, if you had a little more wine on the wine list and, like, some better glasses and little things like that, or a dessert, because at times when you're like, you want something sweet, even if it's not the greatest dessert, you know, that's another 10 bucks with every meal, whatever. But would that restaurant be the same?
0: I don't know, man it's killing me. All I can do is support them yeah. and have them try to figure it out. And that's it. But man, I think about their mandu all the time. <laughs> I think about their, so many of their dishes, man, are just so good. Like she is self-taught her and a mother. I don't even understand how they make the food. Mm. It's like flavor. It's just, <laughs> and I, when I tell people to go there, I'm like, be nice. If they fail you, like, Don't crush them. Because when I think about that, I'm like, man, we need to be more patient about all restaurants, not just restaurants, everything. It's like, hey, if you didn't like it, like, what can you do to make it right for someone else? It's almost like paying it forward in some way, but we're not
1: teaching that. You know, part of what happens with critics is you get so into the cleverness of your own writing, particularly if you're making fun of somebody. And I've been guilty of this at other points in the past where I have a very clever put you know, Her performance ran the gamut from A to B or those famous movie reviews. It's like, you know, man, that's not going to make them perform better, them cook better. And it's just, you know, your ego being stroked. And my attitude about places like that is to understand the context in which they're operating. You know, you try to meet people where they are. And it can be difficult because, mind you, there's an interesting kind of schizophrenia happening in food these days. On one hand, people are talking about how you got to get the best of the best. You got to get the, you know, the guy from saison is doing his own farming and his own fishing because he can't trust anybody else to do it exactly right. But you go to some of these other places and you know they're just going to the supermarket to buy the chicken and the beef and so forth. Yet they're doing great food. How do you manage to maintain those two minds and be hypercritical at this restaurant you're spending $500 a plate at, but also have a different aesthetic when you go on and spend $15 a plate? And that to me is in many ways the dichotomy the of America. You and I had this big discussion about steak, whereas everybody in America is like, well, we had to have a steak for our big celebration, but everybody can't afford to to buy the $100 steak, and in fact, everybody's aesthetic is not to eat this medium rare steak that is so prized and so forth. But I think we need to understand where people are and be able to be buy or try cultural in that regard, hmm. you know. And
0: now a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Roman, with two-thirds of guys experiencing noticeable hair loss by age 35. Most guys assume losing their hair is inevitable as they age. Some don't care. Some shave their head. Some embrace hats. But what they don't know is that there are FDA approved medications designed to stop hair loss and even regrow hair. That's why we're excited to partner up with our sponsor, Roman. Roman makes it easy to get safe FDA approved hair loss treatment all from your phone or computer. And when you go to GetRoman.com Chang, your online visit is free. Consult with a US licensed physician through their secure online platform. No awkward conversations with a receptionist or reading bad magazines in the waiting rooms. Once your doctor ensures that treatment will be safe and effective for you, Roman's dedicated pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free 2-day shipping in discreet packaging. If you're noticing unwanted hair loss, starting treatment early is key, and Roman can help. And today, Roman is giving the Dave Chang show listeners a free online visit at getroman.com/chang. That's GetRoman.com slash Chang for a free visit to get started. Go to GetRoman.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. And now, back to the show. So people might be wondering if they don't know you. Right now, you are currently writing for... The Man in the High Castle on Amazon. Which, last season was the best season. (laughs) And I wonder, is it like better because of the times we're living in? Maybe, but it's still a really great show. But
1: you are not a trained screenwriter. I am a trained writer, but David Simon and Eric Overmeyer, (laughs) who uh, put us two together. um, You know, Simon is a former journalist, and he sort of took the position that if you could write, he could teach you to do screenwriting. But in fact, on every job I've ever been to, nobody teaches you anything. They may correct you, but they assume you're going to sort of learn by doing. So I wrote a script for the first season of Treme. At the end of that season, they called me and said, How would you, in essence, how would you like to be a full time writer on this show? And I've learned sort of the hard way. And in fact, my first year or so in LA is like, Oh, this is different from working for David, Simon, and Eric and writing on Treme. So it's been sort of a long slog. But the other thing that has helped me is I have a very Catholic assortment of interest, And so on. whether we're talking about the man in the high castle or we're talking about Treme, my interest in the kind of history and culture surrounding these things becomes very important.
0: But before Treme, you were doing a lot of different writing. You're a journalist. You're working
1: in New Orleans? Yep. I was a— um, a metro columnist for the Times Picking In. So I'd write about food because food was important to the city's culture, and it was something that interested me, and I had a degree of understanding of it. But that was not my primary job. I was never the restaurant critic. The Brett Anderson is like,
0: no, 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 you can't cover (laughs) (laughs) food.
1: But you know what happens, though? Brett Anderson is not from there. So there's an extent to which Brett Anderson—
0: Minnesota boy, yeah,
1: (laughs) Yep, yep. But he's relying, and to an extent, I really do not want to take anything away from him. But, you know, people like me and Pablo Johnson, who are Louisiana folks, Brett would be asking us for some of the things related to the stuff that he was doing, you know? Did you know you wanted to work in newspapers? I wanted to be a writer in general. But, you know, um, my parents are, for the most part, first-generation college and still got that concern about financial security. My father was sort of a hippie. He'd be hanging out with the white folks smoking weed. My mother was like, look, you need to get a job. (laughs) So I went to journalism school, and the idea was that I would, you know, this would be my day job doing the newspaper stuff, and I'd do other writing on the side, which is sort of what has happened in general. But mind you, at roughly the time when newspapers were looking at their lowest ebb, around um, 2008 or so, when newspapers are closing, David Simon calls and says, we're doing Treme. One, would you like to work with us and write a script? Two, don't quit your day job. (laughs) But I'm like, I can't wait to get out of here. This ship is sinking. (laughs) And in many ways, newspapers are looking better now. But the truth is, television is really looking great in terms of the expansion of the number of networks out there, the kinds of programming you can do. Because we're finally at a point now where that little thing that you care about, There are enough people out there to justify having Netflix or Amazon or Hulu put it on their network. And so the opportunities are great to tell the kind of stories I like to tell.
0: Your father wasn't like, you got to follow my footsteps. You got to be a lawyer. I want you to work in civil rights. Because for those that may not know, and I don't even know fully, I mean, your father was a significant figure
1: in the civil rights movement. I remember the conversation I had when I decided I wasn't going to continue being a business major. And I said, Would I, you know, should I be a lawyer? He basically said that he hadn't liked it since the civil rights movement. And mind you, even after that, he was fighting for various kinds of post-civil rights stuff, whereas a lot of his friends were running for office and doing that kind of thing. My father stayed on the battlefield. I like that idea of fighting. I like that idea of being on the side of a little guy. I don't think that I would have been a good lawyer, I don't think I would have been happy doing that. And the other thing is that what I owe to my father, perhaps more than anything else, is this sense of the importance of culture and the political context. And so the idea of trying to do some kind of art, but also have some sense of what it meant politically, was very much a part of his legacy. I mean, my mother's a teacher and principal and has a PhD in psychology, and it's far more practical. And so in that, you know, I'm practical like her in some ways, but I also have that sense that he had about the culture is as political as the politics. And usually we find that, that leaders don't understand that. I remember I was talking to this professor, a Nigeria historian, an Igbo historian named Othigbo. And he said, you know, when we got independence, we thought that the politicians would come to us to understand some cultural things. As an example, we have a few dozen languages in Nigeria. Certainly in one of these languages, there's a word that would mean roughly the same as Congress or Parliament. Hmm. But they never came. I look, for example, at the kinds of things that we celebrate in the context of of African-American achievement— And the idea of a real celebration of people like Duke Ellington or people like Robert Johnson, a blues performer, we don't really see that sense of culture being important. We don't see people being encouraged to do these things, even though the impact of African Americans on culture has been incredibly important. So that's always been a part of what I've been doing. I've been lucky because a lot of the shows that I've worked on have had that element to them.
0: So you've been doing the same thing your dad has done in different ways.
1: Exactly. And part of it is having a broader view of what they were doing. The other thing is that my parents always had a real sense that they were lucky. So, you know, my mother was a, a guidance counselor and part of her career. And her attitude was, how do I get to these kids who otherwise will have no one looking out for them. I'm in the middle of, we got two kinds of kids at this school. We got some kids from the projects who got all their kinds of problems. And these other kids whose parents may be a little more aspirational. So she created this organization called the VIP Club that literally took the worst kids, the best kids, took them to volunteer and do, like, envelope stuffing and those kinds of things. And the idea is that these students who otherwise would not have been together are put in a special program that allows both of them to understand each other and also to make progress. It's that kind of thing that also is at the heart of what, I, what I'm interested in and what's important to me. Yeah. And you were in school for a while, right? I got a master's in journalism from Columbia, then a master's in creative writing from the University of Virginia, your home state. Yeah. Oh, I love that school. It's you're a nerd. You know, Lois,
0: you're a fucking nerd, man. <laughs> a fucking nerd. And you went to oh, Penn? Oh, man, yeah. Well, Jesus shit. Christ, man. <laughs> I bet, to be honest, I certain that all that money on school made sense, but hey, what you going to do? And with all that, am I right that I did not know this? You were working with Wynton Marsalis? You were like his
1: manager or something? Well, Wynton and I went Come to on. high school together. So was road <laughs> this is really his so crazy. <laughs> but again, that gets back to this whole idea of culture and politics because his father went to college with my parents. And so the idea of jazz being important and we really need to promote jazz, et cetera. I mean, my, my job with Wynton was largely lifting heavy objects. You know, I mean, I'm taking bags and doing that kind of stuff. But also... Because it was a a smaller, more sophisticated operation you might have, like, on a rock tour. You know, it wasn't as if I was only lifting stuff. But I got to see the world. It was my first time going to South America. Um, Was it? Yeah, my first time going to Europe and getting a chance to experience these kinds of things. Um, When
0: you are doing that, what were your parents saying? Like, no, 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 no?
1: um, At that point, I'd already worked for three years at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution as a business reporter. And my mother's big concern is that I get strung out on drugs. And part of it was because my father used to smoke weed like it was going out of style, right? (laughs) And it's a trip because, man, I'd be trying to smoke. I know it doesn't get me high. It's like we've had enough weed in the family bloodline so I must be immune or something. (laughs) But at that point, she knew that you like my head was on straight and that was not apt to happen, either in terms of the drugs or in terms of just the, you know, sort of dropping out. So I don't think she's worried then. And what made you realize, no, 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 I don't want to do this anymore. I want to get back to writing. I knew that I didn't want to do it, but I also knew that the chance to see the world in that context would be a great experience.
0: So is there any chance you might get back into
1: newspapers again? Move back yeah. to New Orleans? What's frustrating about not being in newspapers is you have an idea for a column and you're like, "Man, I you know, I want to I'd like to write this." And you know, few times I've done I've written a couple of things for the Washington Post, but it's like by the time you Jump through all the hurdles of trying to prove to some editor, some new editor, that you can conjugate verbs. It's like, man, it's too much work. In terms of New Orleans, man, I have difficulty imagining a future in LA for me. And I don't, and what the hell is the future? Is it a year from now? Is it 10 years from now? I don't know. I'm still trying to get my arms around this huge place that to me is 10 cities masquerading as one. Mm. And when you begin, when you start off thinking that it's one place, you're trying to figure out why I've been driving an hour and I'm still in L.A. But you're saying, wait a minute! In addition to there being ten cities, L.A. itself is huge, and you got to recognize that. I'm meeting more people, feeling much much better about the city, understanding the city better. But I still don't feel I got the kind of warmth and understanding that I have in my hometown with all of my relatives and friends. You know,
0: what is it about New Orleans? That allows someone that wants to move there and not the casual tourist. What
1: is it about New Orleans that no one else, no other city has? There is a warmth to New Orleans. And I think a lot of it goes back to the French and Spanish attitude towards slavery. It's interesting because, okay, so you got some slaves and you got sort of two options. One is to say, if you try to escape, we're going to kill you. There's no way you'll ever be free. At which point the slave is saying, well, I have no investment in this system. The French and Spanish were like, look, if you work really hard, you can buy your freedom. If you fight with us in this war and you don't get killed, you can also have your freedom. There was a kind of fluidity between slave and free status, between black mixed race and white. I think there is a warmth to New Orleans that you don't get even in other parts of the South based in part upon this kind of embrace that we've had historically, which is not to say that people in New Orleans are not racist, which is not to say that people in New Orleans are not anti-immigrant. I don't want to romanticize this, but there's also this sort of root in our culture that is welcoming in a way that I think is different from other places. Mm.
0: I recently was talking to to Wynn Butler of the Arcade Fire. Not a name drop, but he's doing a lot of work with him and his wife, Regina, to do something for Haiti. And he was saying, like, you know what? Like, that earthquake was a long time ago, but people still need to, like, focus on these
1: things. Hurricane Katrina, has New Orleans recovered still? There are people who still have not gotten home, but at this point, they've sort of made, you know, they've made their, their peace with wherever they're staying. But, you know, it's difficult for me to talk about that outside of the issue of racial politics. I would argue that a lot of New Orleans' identity is because of the African presence. And what we found is that black people were less apt to move back to the city. Mm. Black people are still a majority. And there's an extent to which, particularly in the last mayoral election, there was really an attempt to reassert African-American political power. Which is not to say anything bad necessarily about Mitch Landrew, as much as to say there's an extent to which we felt that we are we are back and trying to assert that. Um, is it better or worse, the still stretch of the ninth war that looked like hurricane katrina was was a few months ago? Part of what you also miss is some of the small restaurants and small businesses that couldn't afford to come back. Mm. It's a catfish place I want you to check out called Barrows, which just came back a few months ago. It's an example of the kind of place that, you know, none of your fine dining chefs would have took you there. Most of them didn't even know about it. I grew up about a mile from there, and I went there a lot more than I went to Dookie Chase when I was a kid. Those kinds of places have tended not to come back. And we've lost something in terms of that. Yeah. I mean, we started filming Treme, what, 18 months after the Katrina? Was it yeah. that close? Uh, or was it maybe less? It was, it was more than that. No, more? Because Katrina was 2005, and Treme started 2008, 2009. So. But
0: there were still parts of New Orleans that were just like, I was like, wow. If this was part of a, another place in America, I bet, I was like, that would already be redone. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but be careful. Part of what happened is we're in a rush to get the Superdome ready because the NFL is big money. We're in a rush to get the French Quarter back because even though it wasn't as badly damaged other places, we're trying to put our feet forward for the tourists. And that's part of what is the problem with New Orleans. It's very much a third world economy. We talk about how great it is when we get these conventions and how great it is when we have a new hotel going up. But the fact that the people who are working at these places are still making slave wages and New Orleans has been poor, or the majority of New Orleans have been poor, whether it's good times or bad times, we never discussed that.
0: On a lighter note, but sort of still on the New Orleans topic, are you a Pelicans fan?
1: (laughs) You know, I don't really follow them that much, to be honest. It's not because I dislike them. One, I, I hate the... I know why they chose the, the name a Pelicans. It's horrible name. It's horrible,
0: yeah. They should have just, God damn, Utah should have given the name back.
1: No, no, better idea. Uh, we should have named our team the New Orleans Tabernacle Choir. And said, <laughs> motherfucker, if you want your name, let's talk. You know? That's what we should have done. But ain't nobody gonna go gonna go that wild. It's a guy named uh, Davis Rogan came up with that idea. This musician is on Treme a lot, you know?
0: <laughs> All right, man. Like, I, I feel like I talked to you forever. Because man, you're just, you just know your shit, man. And and what you do know about life and culture, people should know more about what you think. Because I I try to learn from you as much as possible. And I love hearing your smooth voice (laughs) all the time. (laughs) It's so fucking nice. Where are some places in LA that you like? What was the name of the Ethiopian spawn? Bella, And you were reluctant to share that information for a little bit.
1: Because, you know, they like I go there and it's crowded and they got two women working the floor. In fact, man, back in the 60s and 70s, the black middle class would all go to this place called Mason's Las Vegas Strip, which was Lewis Mason was a good friend of my father. The late Johnny Cochran married one of Lewis Mason's daughters. So she's in L.A. now, et cetera. So my father would sometimes take Lewis Mason out to fancy restaurants because they were good friends. And Lewis Mason gave or loaned my uncle the money to open his liquor store. And so they'd be like in Commander's Palace. And Louis is saying, I don't see how they can make money with all these waitresses working in here. My father's like, well, when I go to your place, I wait an hour for a goddamn drink. I come here, I look up, and somebody comes to help me. So, you know, that kind of understanding of how to run a modern business, you know, I think folks are missing. Um, There's another place I like a lot. And, you know, it's the opposite of fancy. It ain't necessarily quote-unquote authentic. The best fish tacos in Ensenada. There's a place in Silver Lake, which I like. What the name is Best Fish Tacos in Ensenada. You know, it should be in Silver Lake as well. Um, Escuela, this taqueria, I love, which is like, is it on Melrose? I'm trying to think it might be on Beverly, but Escuela tacos, I love. Cali, K-A-L-I is a restaurant that I know is on Melrose. It's kind of fine dining. They got this dish that is raw fish with vegetables, all kinds of pretty vegetables that look like flowers with a cold-smoked beef broth. So it is uh, sashimi, soup, and salad all on one plate. It's gorgeous. I love it.
0: I mean, that's the thing is your recommendations are important because you go where the flavor's at, man. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, I even as a kid or as you know, like a college student, it never bothered me to go to a place that is like, I wasted money on a bad meal. I'm like, I'm out here exploring, trying to find stuff. And also, I don't have preconceived notions about what is supposed to be good. You know, I like it. It's interesting, et cetera. So give me some, I mean, I don't know. Everyone asked me for my list in New Orleans. I was like, why are you asking
0: me? <laughs> 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 the fuck? <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah. Where are some? So there's always a debate. Commanders or galatoire's. if you want the fancy.
1: I understood. Or Brennan's. Okay. Three very different places, all claiming to be quote-unquote Creole now. Let me tell you, Galatoire's, the menu— By the way, his
0: eyes are wide open right now. This is a very <laughs> important topic. <laughs>
1: well, you know, there's a great food journal you need to know about called The Art of Eating, Ed Bear Journal. Massively important. Yes, and I wrote a piece for them on Galatoire's versus Commanders, which taught me the difference between those restaurants. Galatoire's menu has hardly changed in 100 years. If you want the classic dishes that your great-grandfather would have gotten there— go to Galatoire's. It's always going to be good. It's never going to be adventurous. But I mean, if you're sauteing fish every day, you you know, you get it right eventually. Commander's Palace, for as long as the Brennan family has owned it, has always attempted to be sort of Hope Creole. They told me there are, I think, 10 dishes that never leave the menu. Everything else changes. And even though it's front of the house driven because the owners are not chefs, their chefs are given leeway and given a lot of respect to do different things. Now, of course, you go to commanders and everything you order this time is great. Next time you go, you may not be as pleased, but they're doing different things. And so it's not the same menu all the time. So when you go back to New Orleans, which one do you want to eat at? First thing. Um I can't even say, you know, oh, you, of, of, <laughs> you are not running for office. Well, that is BS.
0: But <laughs> man, in terms you, you of, should, Your next job is politician. <laughs> I know what it is. <laughs> no, man. Like, um, <laughs> I'm not oh, going to put you on man. the spot. Listen, I love Galtois mm-hmm. because as a tourist perspective, it's just like, this is the kind of dining that like, I would imagine going as a, like a little kid on a fancy, fancy trip. Is it true that they put the locals downstairs and the tourists upstairs? Come on.
1: (laughs) You can get reservations upstairs. You can't get reservations downstairs. So that's a polite way of saying yes. (laughs) It's like if you want to eat at Galatoire and you can't get a table, yeah, go upstairs. The food's the same. But the experience, Friday afternoon lunch at Galatoire is, you know, it's a circus. I can't explain why. It's not ineffable.
0: But eating at that restaurant is just joy. Yeah. It's downstairs.
1: But you know, what's interesting about you saying that, again, somebody who's done all this fine dining knows all those things. The Galatoise food is simple. And I don't mean that as an insult at all. It's a lot of butter. Yeah. It's just simple. Everything's simple. Now, mind you, it's the freshest fish you're going to get. The lamb chops at Galatoise are something of a surprise. I'm like, you know, one time I was going there with a food critic, I'm like, I ain't paying. Let me get something I wouldn't normally get. And, but that is a restaurant that is classic. It, it hasn't changed in 100 years. I wonder what it would be like
0: to be part of something that, like, it's about preserving. That would be amazing to me. Yeah. And I love that restaurant.
1: Where do you get your uh, po' boy? Either Dookie Chase or there's a seafood market slash takeout place called Zimmers near where my mother lives. And I love this shrimp po' boys, but Miss Chase there's a thing called pan bread, which is a bit like Texas toast, thick slices of regular white bread. So getting an oyster sandwich on pan bread is one of the things that always reminds me of my parents and back in the day because their first big date was Tookie Chase. But, you know, part of what is so great about New Orleans, we got so many signature dishes. And what frustrates me about many other parts of the country is the extent to which they have not maintained that sense of of their own culinary traditions, so it's like I'm, I would speak on college campuses and uh, at Ohio State, and I'm asking, "Well, where would you take me? What would you serve me if I really wanted some Ohio food?" And it's not as if people in Ohio were not eating prior to McDonald's and Burger King. They obviously they were, but the sense of food as being important to identity is something that New Orleans has always had, that the South has always had, and. Certain other American cities, New York has a list, you know, they got the bagels, they got the pretzels, they got the pizza and so forth. Chicago, similarly. But most of America does not think about food in that way.
0: Hmm.
1: There's a story I tell all the time. Um, Hurricane Katrina hit on a Monday. So I went to my relatives in Maringuin, Louisiana, which is outside of Baton Rouge. And Dawn Logson, my partner on a documentary I did, her folks had rented a house in Baton Rouge. So the Monday after Katrina, we gathered all of our friends and family who were in Baton Rouge, and we had a dinner there. And I'm talking about like 30 people saying, you know, sit down dinner. We serve red beans and rice. Hmm. And serving that food, automatically we're saying we still love our city. We intend to go back to our city. We could say all of that in a pot of red beans. And I dare say that, you know, pick a city in America— other than a very few there's no dish you could say that about and there are a lot of countries you could say that about if all of a sudden there are a bunch of Senegalese refugees and they were stuck in in the United States and they wanted to affirm their Senegalese-ness they could do a part of Chibujan, and everybody would know that this is us
0: you know this is so like uh, wrong of me to bring up <laughs> uh, it's almost heretical I'm sure but when you talk about red beans and rice you know what first thing popped in my head is Popeye's red beans and rice <laughs>
1: Oh man, no, Popeye red beans are great. It's the rice I don't like. I mean, I let me bet, Brooke. I've gone to Popeye's. To Sorry. Maybe, you just gave me this beautiful story. And I was like, shit, that is amazing. Oh uh, man, you know John Kearns from Oxford, right? Oh, uh, that he goes on and on about Popeye's chicken, which is good. But I'm like, I will go to Popeye's and order the, the red beans, say, so baby, don't put no rice up in there. Cause I got rice at home, good rice. You know? Cause they're using that parboiled rice, but the beans are on fire. Oh man. Unbelievable, yes, right? Yes. The fact that you
0: can get that. We've spoken about Popeyes and all the other. This is just take all the other nonsense out and important things out. Simply talking about red beans and rice. The red beans itself is best in class.
1: I, I, it's fucking crazy I, to yeah, say that. I don't know any better red beans than that. <laughs> but you know, that's part of like I think about airline food. I'm like, wait a minute. If Popeyes can serve a cajillion servings of red beans, this good. Then why can't I get a decent meal in the air? You know, I've talked to chefs about this and it's like, oh, you know, your taste buds change at 30,000. I'm like, first of all, you can't really overcook red beans. In Haiti, they have a dish they call sauce pois, which is basically pureed red beans. So I'm like, you overcook the red beans, you got sauce pois, Still tastes great. Rice, same thing. Why can't they do What that are they putting of? in the red bean? You mean other than the crack? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Seriously. Like,
1: I've tried to recreate it. I just can't do it. I think butter is one of the ingredients. And I remember my mother telling me she'd heard that from somebody. So I now put butter in my red beans as a kind of secret ingredient. But Warren LaRuth developed that recipe. And Warren LaRuth was a great chef whose food I never got to taste. But after he closed his restaurant, he was sort of famous for being able to come to your restaurant and taste this and recreate it. So he, I understand, created the recipe for that. So you got a fancy fine dining chef from New Orleans doing red beans. Um, I assume cayenne pepper. But beyond that, um, it's the same ingredients we all know, but in some magic proportion, you know? Well, if you've learned anything, I find it amazing
0: and it gives me great joy that— even though he hates the rice in the red beans and rice at Popeye's, then I feel vindicated that the red beans themselves are arguably best-in-class red
1: beans. And there was a moment when Al Copeland, who founded Popeye's, had bought Church's fried chicken, and they started serving white beans at churches, and they were good. But, you know. All right, man, people need to eat more beans. But they got to go to (laughs) New Orleans to know what it tastes like, too, first and foremost. We got a thing— in terms of how we cook beans, that other folks don't have, you know, you get these sort of watery beans, and I don't not so much watery, but the idea is we cook them to the point where you got some beans that are still whole, and some that have been made into a, a, a jus or a sauce, and that combination is what folks miss, you know. Willie
0: Mae's white beans, one of the best things I had in a long time.
1: So go there. Oh, well, you know, I've been. I wanted to tell you, have you had Brighton's pecan pie? No. Well, you're still young. <laughs> My brother is the best.
0: I just... I, can't, I always pick out the pecans, man. I don't hate pecans. It's just too many pecans in a pecan pie. This place...
1: First of all, the crust is like Lavoche crackers. Is that the diner that's in the house in New Orleans? It's not a diner, no, but it is it's in the house in New Orleans. Yeah, It's a famous place... Uh, it's Uptown. Um, it's a White
0: House. Yep. I've been yeah. there. Okay, yeah. I've been there. It, it's very good. Oh, man. But, but it's also, still
1: pecan pie. Take the pecans. Reduce the number of pecans and we're good. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> well, you know, I'm sorry. I love them. So. No, it's so good. But, you know, also, though, when I think about the kinds of places that are sort of only in New Orleans places, uh, Gabrielle and Brightson's and Upper Line are places that are not trying to be in New York restaurants. They're not trying to out Danielle Danielle. Which is not to say New Orleans chefs shouldn't be ambitious and be in dialogue with the world. But part of what I look at is, where can I take you that you're not going to be able to get this anywhere else? What about Casamento's? Oh, man, Casamento's. I think that place is rad. Oh, man, it's fabulous. The oyster scene there? It is great. In fact, I I wish I thought of it. Part of the problem with Casamento's— It's far away from stuff, right? No, no. No, it's it's on Magazine Street. That's not the problem. The problem is that they close during the summer, which makes sense in the context of oysters coming from the Gulf and it being warm. But it means that if you happen to go on your one trip to New Orleans in June, you cannot go to Casamento's. They also cut their French fries themselves, which is, you know, it's coming back in style. It's just a cool spot. It has that tile work, kind of like Galatoire's, and it feels like New Orleans. And you know, part of the problem is, okay, you're a really good New Orleans chef, and I want to invest in your restaurant. And part of what I'm going to do is say, well, let's try to make it feel like other restaurants, as opposed to someplace authentic.
0: I'm going to probably end on something maybe controversial, because I've never asked you about this. What are your thoughts on domiciles, or I don't even know how to pronounce it
1: right. Uh, domilices. domolices? <laughs> I've been a few times. The difficulty in me giving an answer is that it is not my go-to po'boy spot.
0: Because everyone... Why, why does everyone have their po'boy spot? It is um, weird.
1: Yeah, but you have the place that you grew up with, which is not to say that even its fans would necessarily pick it in a blind tasting. I don't have a problem with it. I like it. But it's not where I tend to go for boys. So I don't I know. guess what I like about it is that you can't order anything.
0: You have to have... It's like the most insane ordering system I've ever seen in my life. <laughs>
1: But that's like, but that's classic old school. Dude, I love it. And that's exactly what, what, you know, the consultants would never let you do. So how You got to take you... a
0: ticket, move over there, and then sit down, take another ticket, move over there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's the way Mama did it back in the day. In fact, Southern Foodways Alliance gave them an award when they did our thing in New Orleans a couple of weeks before Hurricane Katrina. Because I'm like, who else is going to give this kind of place an award? Thank you and for I, doing that. Because
0: yeah. I also believe they
1: served the coldest beer I've ever had. So, check it out. Which is one of my favorite things. Oh man, you when we travel outside this country trying to explain to people what you mean by cold beer, they're like, "Oh, it's it's okay." It's like, "No, man.
0: Real 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 cold beer on a hot day in New Orleans. Listen, uh, as you can see, I could talk to this man forever. Uh, hopefully, you learned a bunch of stuff and check out all of his work. You have a lot of your stuff online anyway, not not just your books.
1: Uh, the Oxford American, I've written a lot of stuff there. Um, the TV shows for me, and Man in the High Castle, and Greenleaf. It's unfindable. Lolas, thank you, sir. Dave, pleasure. All right, brother.
0: Thanks so much, guys, for listening to the conversation with Lawless. I hope you enjoyed it and have a better understanding how the food industry and food writing and just sort of judgment works. And I think it was pretty clear to see just how smart and great opinions Lawless has because I always feel smarter after talking to him. I wanted to get to one of our, our segments that we're trying to do a little bit more of, and that's answering some of the questions from askdave at majordomomedia.com. That's askdave, one word, at majordomomedia.com. And I'm sorry if I don't get to your email right away. I'm very long-winded, but like Allison Latham writes, hey, Dave, I'm not a professional chef, but I love watching movies about food. The problem is I have no idea if what I'm watching is bullshit. In your opinion, what are the best or most accurate movies about what it's like to be a chef? Thank you for the email question, Allison. Um, It's always weird for me to do this, to even answer email questions. And uh, (laughs) this is probably one of my favorite things to think about because I get asked this a lot besides like, what's my favorite thing to eat or what's my last meal I want to cook with all that nonsense. Um, You know, the interesting thing about food movies and food television is i don't think that we've done it yet there hasn't been a movie that's sort of transcended the culinary genre in a way there are some and i'll get into that in a second and i'm waiting and that's exciting because i don't know if it's happened yet and i don't know what the reason is as to why maybe it's hard to shoot uh maybe the stories are there but ultimately i feel like a lot of um food movies Exaggerate or they dumb it down in a way, and it's just not believable. And I'm not saying that uh, these are my favorite, most enjoyable movies. These are the ones that I feel to be like the most, most real to me. So people ask me all the time, and I'll always say that the best movie that communicates what it is like to actually be a cook is not technically a movie about the culinary world or restaurant cooking, but a movie about brutal repetition and the tension between individuality and working in a group, the old unspoken mentorship shit of the old school way of how cooking used to be, the dark ages of cooking is Whiplash. The movie, it's about music, it's about jazz drumming. And uh, <laughs> when I watched that, I felt like I was watching a movie that best describes sometimes the feeling of being a cook and the, and the pressures involved and the Basically the entire sacrifice you're doing to actually be great at something. And to the point where no one else quite can understand why you're sacrificing so much to work in a kitchen. And, um, listen, it's not a cooking movie, but it's not even like the best uh, way to describe it. But for whatever reason, the, the vibe that I get is, is like the same thing that I wish a cooking movie could be. So if you just replace jazz with cooking, I think you have what might be the best culinary movie Two. On the list is Ratatouille. (laughs) And yes, it's a Pixar cartoon, but it took a cartoon to capture what's universal and emotional about cooking. They get some of the brigade system right. Like, you know, if you suspend the belief that it's animation, a lot of the themes, I think, are the best kinds of topics when people love about food, uh, why someone cooks, and the positive reasons that come out of it, and some of the nonsense about the stupid pressures involved in cooking. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but Ratatouille is one of my favorite movies. I highly encourage you to watch it again. Yes, it's about a rat that cooks, but uh, I feel like it's such an absurd thing that it matches the absurdity and stupidity of real restaurant cooking. Third on my list is Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, because the cooking scenes are the most real and beautiful. Ang Lee, obviously a master director, I love this movie simply because while it's a bit formulaic, I could really relate to how the chef, Master Wu, I believe is his name, can only communicate his life through food. Like There's a lot of similarities in my own life and family, and he struggles outside of the kitchen to be good as he is as a chef, and he's a world-class Chinese chef making delicious food. And it's in subtitles. It's still... I watched it again recently, one of my favorite movies of all time, not just a a movie about cooking. Highly recommend you watch it. Again, it takes place in Taipei. It probably took place 25 years ago. Amazing movie and makes you want great Chinese food, makes you want to get to Taipei immediately. Number four for me is Big Night for the way it depicts the pressure of running a restaurant, how everything can ride on a critic's visit or a night that might change everything. And it's almost as arbitrary as flipping a coin, but the idea of doing it right and not sacrificing the, the familial bond of cooking with your brother, it has a lot of elements that ring true to me, even though it takes place. And I think in like New Jersey in the 1950s, but um, you know, the, the dinner scene, if you haven't watched it as improbable as it is, like I can imagine that happening like that kind of, Naivete to just follow your gut. And I like that it's relatively not a happy ending, but a true ending. And five, probably bumping out a few other re- restaurant movies that I like a lot. I'm not saying that like these are my favorite. Maybe they're my favorite. I don't know. I'm just coming up with a list because I got this funny email. My number five movie is A Star is Born. <laughs> I know, I know it's going to sound insane, but, um, I avoided watching it for a long time because I knew the premise and I tend to avoid movies about substance abuse and depression because they hit so close to home, especially with this year with Bourdain uh, dying. But I finally watched it and I loved it. It was something that really resonated with me. And uh, I kept on thinking about it, that if you actually made Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper into cooks instead of musicians you get a real sense for the dark side of the kitchen and a lot of the stupidity and heartache and suffering and sometimes tragedy that you experience being a professional cook. And again, like I'm not trying to make the comparison other than that. Like if you just replaced it, it's almost like if Bradley Cooper replaced his character in burnt a movie that Bill Simmons and I talk quite a bit about because I think it's a horrible movie, but (laughs) Burnt should have had a *Stars born ending and a star is born should have had the ending of Burnt if that made any sense. So a lot of creative people will probably see that when their profession is being pictured in a movie, it's never quite what is actually real life. For instance, when I see culinary movies, one of the reasons why I don't like them is because I just don't feel that they're believable and they still have to be sort of Made into a movie, and I understand that. And when I talk to my friends that are musicians about *Stars Born*, they're like, "Yeah, it's a good movie, but it's the most simplified, linear, almost unbelievable trajectory for a movie about music." So, like, while they love it, they're hesitant to fully endorse it. And I feel that way about a lot of movies. And I was like, "Why couldn't *Burnt* be like *A Stars Born*? You know, like Bradley Cooper had the opportunity." but the passion just wasn't there. It just wasn't believable. The cooking scenes weren't believable, but like the the, the feeling of, of someone not figuring it out and the sadness of it all to me made more sense that if you replaced musicianship with culinary arts in A Star is Born, that would have been the best culinary movie. So for right now, even though it makes no sense, and I'm sure people are listening to this, is like, does Dave have a bong hit in his left hand right now? Because it's so insane, but... I recognize his character way more than I recognize The Chef in Burnt. I recognize Bradley Cooper's character in A Star Is Born more than I see his character in Burnt. And I'm sure a lot of musicians think this movie is bullshit too, the same way I felt about Burnt. And if I didn't lose you guys, that was the best way I could describe it. So you got an insight into how fucking stupid my brain works. So... I think that might be the first and last time I answer an Ask Dave at MajordomoMedia.com question. I thought it was fun. Thank you for tuning in. Please give us five stars and however you rate us on iTunes or Spotify or whatever. Uh, Stay tuned next week and watch A Star is Born. Watch Ratatouille. Watch Eat and Drink, Man Woman. Watch Big Night if you love food. And uh, even all the ones, even Favreau's movie, Chef is great. There are a lot of good movies out there. But uh, you got to look at Whiplash in a different way, too. (laughs) Anyway, I'll shut the fuck up now. Thanks, guys.